Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Jason Gardner is a former U.S. Navy SEAL, combat leader, and now a leadership instructor and speaker with Echelon Front. Jason spent nearly 30 years in the Navy SEALs with nine employments across the globe. With experience operating in violent cities in both Iraq and Afghanistan, Jason has seen firsthand the power of the leadership lessons taught at Echelon Front. He brings perspectives from every level of leadership from a frontline SEAL sniper to a SEAL Team 5 Command Master Chief. As a lead instructor with Navy Special Warfare Group 1 Training Detachment, he created and implemented realistic and challenging special operations combat training to better prepare SEAL units for the real-world battlefield. He is the recipient of the Silver Star, two Bronze Stars, and a Purple Heart, to name a few. After his retirement from the Navy, Jason brings unmatched experience with combat leadership and dynamic environments, building winning teams, and developing relationships across all levels of organization. He serves as a leadership instructor, speaker, and strategic advisor at Echelon Front. Jason, thank you so much for being here, and we just wanted to get right into it. So, when we talk about leadership, you were mentioning the importance of kindness, how people sometimes focus out of that or don't even see it on the map. So what would you like to say about that to get us started? Currently, there's a lot of friction points in the world. And I'm not sure that right now that we're in any worse time than we have in the, been in the past. In fact, I can look historically and find a lot of examples where times have been worse. A lot of it has to do with your perspective. However, you know, we've got a war, Ukraine. We've got really high gas prices, and it seems like we've gotten to a situation where people are particularly contentious. I see that online. I don't see that in my community. I don't see that when I'm interacting with my community. I see everybody essentially gets along. And even the people that are pretty diametrically opposed in their politics and the folks that are really out on the fringes, it's all based on fear and fear just feeds a lack of kindness. And so I always try to run a kindness filter on, on my thoughts to think, you know, like, hey, if I'm thinking to them or I'm getting ready to say something, is like, is this kind? Is this helpful? And so I think that the kindness is a really, really good way to anchor yourself. And what I've also discovered with it is there is a huge amount of positive energy so oftentimes when I'm not feeling good, if I just reach out and do something nice for someone else, just engage someone in a friendly conversation and maybe compliment, you know, what they're wearing. Yesterday I was talking to a guy at the gas station and, and he had a really cool cami jacket. I'm like, bro, that's an awesome camo pattern. It's on us, but it's not about us. If we can put our emphasis on somebody else, how we can spread that kindness, how we can give to them. I got to interview Nick Norris before and he was saying a similar thing about how as a leader, it's about kindness. And he says, it's actually about love. You have to love this person enough to trust them 
But because of that, you also hold them to a high standard in the process of the training, the things that we try to instill within them. So it's interesting how those come together. If you watch Nick Norris, if you just watch him and see how he behaves, he is the best example of this. He has a black belt in kindness and love. And it's working out really good for him. And like he's a great example because he's someone I strive to emulate when relating to folks in this manner. Essentially, it's like a spring. The more you develop it, the more will flow from you. But it starts with you. You have to learn how to love yourself because when you don't like other people, you're casting judgment. And that's really a reflection of who you are inside. And getting to that point of being able to unconditionally love other people is difficult. And it's a really difficult concept to wrap your head around. I think that's where your namesake, Marcus Aurelius, was going towards in his meditations. And that book is so cool because we can just read him struggling with that. It's really great. It's incredible, especially when we consider that Marcus never expected that book to be published. It was like, this is just him keeping himself accountable, him reflecting, like he's on the front lines. He's in the dramatic war at the time of this. So he is being pulled every which way, it's cold, everybody's sick. And yet he's still there saying, if this is endurable, then endure it. Stop complaining. Is this what you were meant to do? Sit under the covers while other men are dying because you don't want to take your responsibility. Like this is your destiny. Lean into it. And I think it's so powerful because there's a lot of people that will say, especially executives or leaders that think, oh, well, echelon front, they're talking about all these war tactics and all this other stuff about combat. I don't want to learn that. I'm in business, but they don't understand that these very principles and you're smiling. These principles are what make it so important. So I've got essentially the attack for which there is no defense, and it's not a good word to call it an attack. But when people say the laws of combat don't apply to them and, oh, that doesn't apply to business, it just applies to the military. And we're like, okay, our first law of combat is cover and move, and that's about teamwork. And so are you going to tell me that you would rather have every department at your organization all siloed and working against each other? And just working their own agendas and not working for the overall goal of the team. Our second law of combat is simple. Hmm. So maybe for your business, it makes sense to really complicate everything and make it so that it's difficult to understand. A third law of combat is prioritize and execute. And of course, it makes sense for businesses to be going in a bunch of different directions instead of sitting back and going, well, what is the main priority and what is the main focus of our effort today? And how does everybody else cover and move and get the teamwork going so we can move in that direction. And finally, decentralized command. Of course, that only applies to the battlefield. You would be better off if there was only one person making the decisions for everybody. And in that case, the person farthest away from the problem, making decisions on how to solve those problems. When we explain it that way, then then people are like, okay, I get it. That's why it applies to us. And Jocko said this thing the other day, when we were at the muster last week in Dallas. And he's like, hey, you need to go out and help other people. And you need to put other people and making other people better before yourself. And you need to be more concerned about your team and so that your team wins. And it doesn't matter if you're a master chief of the SEAL team or an executive of a corporation. If that's your goal, then what's going to happen if your focus is like, what is the right thing for the team and what's the right thing for our organization and what's the right thing for my business? Your business is going to do well. And then the weird thing is you will do better. If you're just concerned about yourself, 
that catches up with you. And in the long term, you're going to do worse. So it goes back to that thing about to receive, you need to give. Absolutely. I got to hear Jocko speak here in Tulsa last weekend, and it was very similar where he was saying, people say, how do I influence more? He says, no, you need to impact more. And then the influence happens incidentally, but the impact is because why you care about this person, you have empathy for them. You're able to step back, put your ego in check, give them the space to maybe fall down a little bit. He was mentioning again, as you've done with leadership, allowing young leaders to go through training, let them fall down, give them the advice, knowing that they may not take it and still allowing them to figure it out on their own now in a training capacity, as opposed to whether it be the combat in the battlefield of business or the real world combat that people are in right now as we speak. Right. Let's pull that back to parenting. I need my kids to try things and I need to set up boundaries. So when they fail, it's not catastrophic. So basically life's an obstacle course and I need to teach them how to get over each obstacle course, you know, in BUDS, And in in the SEAL teams, we have this big obstacle course and all the obstacle course, you know, they all have names. Like there's the Weaver and the Dirty Name and the Rope Swing and the Burma Bridge. You know, they're all different and there's techniques to clear them all. And so you need to have discussions, you know, and parenting is leadership. Again, everything is leadership. And so I want to teach them how to overcome those obstacles. And it's important that I'm not really sheltering them from everything because they're going to get exposed to it. They're going to get exposed to different when they go into the world. It's scalable, which ideas you expose them to, but I don't have a problem. Any of that stuff that people are like, well, I don't, I don't know if I want my kids to to hear it in public school. I think, Hey, this is a great opportunity for me to talk with my kids. And then I also find that if I'm trying to force an idea down their throat, it might not stick. And Jocko, there's a great thing that he says is like, even your favorite food, if someone force feeds it to you, you're not going to like it. But if I can lay out a stream of breadcrumbs and have good conversations with my kids about different things out there, then that's the ideal, these different concepts and everything. And then then they're going to come to their own conclusions and their, their own conclusions might be a little different okay but as long as they're coming to those conclusions through a sense of kindness and like unconditional love for others then i've done my job and you know it it may be you know it's like as long as they're walking through this world with a sense of kindness and they're treating others with kindness and respect and doing the best that they can then i've won and that helps them in every area of life you're helping them have this communication about this subject that we may not understand or agree on, but yet you're teaching them, listen, we can talk about it. We can unpack this. This helps us defend or negate the things that we may or may not have been taught in the process. And the idea is to be open, to have that kindness. And now maybe we'll learn something that we didn't know before. Maybe we'll have an insight that we never would have gotten any other way. And we always talk about those things. But as you were saying, especially on the internet or on social media, people isolate themselves. They compartmentalize themselves. And they feel that that allows them to justify behaviors or comments that in real life, you would never say to somebody because it's deplorable. Yeah, right. That thing, like people say stuff to each other on the internet that they wouldn't say to somebody on an elevator. And it's not because that other person might punch them. It's because they would be able to see the hurt that they cause and that would not make them feel good. So, and the other thing back to that, like navigating these obstacles, you can give your kids these different strategies 
to overcome things that were going to come over fairly often in life. Like my kids were dealing with something where somebody was teasing them. And actually, everybody deals with teasing on the school bus. And I'm like, hey, listen, do you guys know what a staring contest is? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, who wins the staring contest? They're like, the person who blinks first. Got it. So when someone calls you a name or says something that's, you know, like hurtful to you, you got to say to yourself in your head, aha, I am in a contest with this other person. And so if you want to win, you don't give them a reaction. You don't blink. There's no reaction. I'm like, that's the basic win, but that's a win. And when you look at it from a competition standpoint, it automatically kind of helps them detach from their emotion. That's the basic win. Now, the advanced win is when you smile back at them and you say, you know what? I like these shoes. They didn't cost my parents a lot of money. They fit my feet pretty good. And so I don't have a problem with them. And so that they're able to return that frown with a smile. Kind of it, what it does is it jams that back at that person who launched it at you tenfold. And then it also, it's the best way to do it. Do my kids do well at that? No, they don't. They need more practice. I've got to help them navigate those things. And honestly, as I'm saying this, it's helpful to me because adults do this junk to each other all the time as well. Absolutely. And as you say, teaching it to somebody else forces us to truly know the knowledge. We have to internalize it. One, teach, two, learn, and we're reinforcing it for everyone involved in the process. It's so true. And you knew that you wanted to be a SEAL at seven years old, but tell me how karate in high school, how that philosophy, how that martial mentality set you up. Do you still use that sort of philosophy now? I'm sure that it naturally dovetails with the philosophy that you've had from the SEALs. Yeah. So like when I was seven, I decided I would join the military and I didn't quite land on the SEAL teams until I was in high school, just because you just didn't back in the seventies, eighties, you just didn't hear about the SEAL teams. So I had this drive to just get out of my house, get out of my hometown. I wanted to get out into the world and have my own adventure. So I latched on to the SEAL teams and then it was just this intense drive to not to fail that helped me get through it. And it was a little bit of extra pressure that I told everybody in my hometown and on my swim team and that I lifeguarded with that that's what I was going to do, that I'm like, hey, I'm either going to graduate or die here. There's no middle ground. And so that helped me make it through. And we have a saying at Echelon, discipline equals freedom. And Marcus Aurelius talked about that. And all the Stoics talked about you. And, and essentially, everybody who is really into philosophy talks about the importance of discipline. And so today, where is that discipline at? Today, that discipline is in setting aside all the junk I'm trying to do and making time to spend time with my children so I can be the best father and human being that I can. It means carving out enough time to exercise, carving enough out enough time to do my Wim Hof breathing, carving out enough time to do the cold exposure and actually doing those things that aren't comfortable doing them in the moment, but benefit me and my health in the long haul. It's like their days, Mondays, I fast. I do a 36 hour fast every Monday. Sometimes on Mondays, I'm out doing stuff with my family and they're eating and I've just got to sit there and get through it. But because I've got the reps, because I've been doing it for a long time, it gets easier and easier to, to apply that discipline. 
there isn't an aspect of your life where you could go wrong applying discipline to it as long as you're in balance. I absolutely agree. I think that adversity is the best teacher. And I think that these micro adversities, like you're talking about the cold exposure, the knowledge that this is just cold water, the knowledge that while it's been 36 hours since you've eaten, you know that if all else failed, that's not as if there's not food available. There's a difference. That voluntary idea of trying to make yourself better, it tempers us and it forces us to elevate. And as you say as well, what sort of incredible example does that set for the family that shows them that this is what's possible? This can be the norm if we so choose, as opposed to being distracted by a bunch of electronics or anything else that tries to vie for our attention in these days. Yeah, everything is a double-edged sword, all of it. Fire is really good when you need to stay warm and not so cool when it burns your house down. Instagram is really good. Well, actually it was Facebook, but social media in general. So we have through a Bernie's mountain dog group, we met a Ukrainian that's in Kiev. And, you know, it was really interesting. They're sending pictures in real time of what's going on over there. And, and initially we're like, hey, do you have Venmo or something? We can send money. And the guy's like, no, we're good. You know, everything's good. And then a week ago, he reached out to folks on Facebook where he said, hey, everything cost four times what it did a month ago. And we're out of money. Can you help? And so now we can help this person in Kiev or Kiev or however you pronounce it in Ukraine directly and reach out. And there's two things we're doing there. We're showing support to somebody on the other side of the world. And we're able to see what's going on there in real time without being run through any filters. Because every media organization is filtering things based on their cognitive bias that they're trying to feed. Their cognitive bias and the advertisement dollars that they're getting. Yeah. And that's kind of a bias too, isn't it? I absolutely agree. And it's been going on forever. It has. And it's a great example of like you're saying, you're literally putting that kindness and that loving intention behind that by being able to give these people money. Once you've fallen down and once you've been down and somebody's helped you up, you never forget what that was like. You never forget that person. You never forget how good it felt to be able to be in that place. So to be able to give it back to somebody else, that reciprocity is so powerful. Yeah, I really think it is. You know, like we were discussing earlier, when you give, you do get this really buoyant energy that comes through you. It's like the same thing. If you pay attention to how you're feeling inside, then you you walk around in public and you smile at people. And when they smile back, You'll notice that you feel a little bit of radiance, a little bit of love. I, I don't know what to call it, but it feels good and I like it. And I'm trying to do it more because my problem is, is typically I'll walk around with this just resting bitch face and, and, and mine's kind of really drastic. And so I'm not radiating out kindness. But when I start to force myself to smile as I'm moving through public and then I notice that I feel better. And then I noticed that other people, and you never know who's going through what, that you smiling at them just helped pop their day up a couple notches. That's absolutely it. There was a woman that I saw that was having a hard time getting her card to work for her gas. So I just came over. I was like, can I get that for you? And it was $40. But I found out from talking to her, what did that do that created that exchange? She cleans houses. She didn't have enough money to get to the next house to clean to make money. So that $40 to her was, it changed her life. And it was so simple. How hard is it to make somebody feel good? Whether it be smiling, opening the door, just engaging, just saying good morning can change their world. Yeah. That's a really cool thing to do where you see someone at like at the gas pump or whatever. And that that's awesome. You know, 
I'm hesitant when I see people panhandling to give them money because I don't know what their situation is and I don't know that I'm really helping them. But there's often times where I just, you know, sometimes they're out there in the cold and I'm like, look at this person. I don't know what their issues are. I don't know what struggles they have. And okay, if they go buy a beer with it, I don't care. Here's 10 bucks. But also paying attention and having that situational awareness to see someone's in need and they're not even asking for it. And then you can help. I bet that made you feel great. And I bet just telling that story that you felt good. I didn't even think about it. Like you said, as I'm saying it, it absolutely feels great. And like you were saying as well, even if there's somebody at the gas station or somebody that's panhandling or they're cold, if I walk inside, buy them hot coffee and then give them a $5 bill, now I'm helping them now. And then what they do with it after is up to them. But at the same time, in this moment, I can end their suffering, at least for this time. Mm -hmm. When we do that, it's just pay attention to it because you are being touched by the grace of God when you do that. And it's become a part of you. Now, God is a word that's a signpost and it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And I'm speaking to everybody across the board and that positive energy, get it in you all the time. And you do that by looking at the world through a sense of kindness. And you're able to do that too, by being disciplined. And this is where discipline ties back into it by being disciplined enough to run those filters on your thoughts. I love, okay, I'm going to quote Marcus Aurelius again. Don't ever be overheard complaining, especially by yourself or even by yourself. And so pay attention to your internal dialogue. And if you're constantly complaining, it's like, ah, gas prices are high and this is Biden's fault or something's going on here and it's Trump's fault. Stop it. That's complaining. And then just if you start to pay attention to it, you notice it, then you can detach from it. And you can seriously, you can train yourself out of it so that you can walk around like Nick Norris does, where he's just on fire and is just a positive ray of sunshine everywhere he goes. It's so true. And again, emotions assassinate the truth. But if we can detach, now we can have that objectivity. I talk about pragmatic empathy and people hear the word empathy. So they think it's this warm, fuzzy thing. But again, it's truly situational awareness. If I can see this person, I have my head on a swivel. And I can have an idea of what they're feeling. Like you said, now I can perhaps help them. But also if I'm trying to defend myself or my family or someone else that needs defending, I can see that this person is looking around. Maybe they have an aggressive nature, whatever it is, or a posture. And now we can cross the street to avoid that. And it serves in so many realms. And again, that becomes that discipline that comes back to that humility, the capacity to be aware of what's going on around us, as opposed to just being, because a lot of times, especially in today's day and age, it's very easy for us to be self-absorbed. So. That empathy thing, people, here's the other thing that people mistake on that is that they think it's warm and fuzzy and they think I'm going to, I have to agree with other people are thinking, and that's not true. Empathy doesn't mean you have to agree with their point of view. Empathy means that you understand it and any problem or any friction point or anything going on in the world that you're going to face any challenge, all these obstacles we talk about, they're not one-sided. They're like the Rubik's cube. And so this analogy really helps me to get my head around this stuff. So if I'm just trying to solve the Rubik's cube for what I see, and just from my point of view, I'd only solve one side. So for instance, if I could throw this together and I got this all blue, that's cool. There's still a bunch of other sides that are not solved. And so if you want to come up with the good solutions, 
then you need to look at problems from as many different angles as you can. So as a leader, I need to understand the perspective of my subordinates and my teammates. I need to understand the perspective of my competition or the enemy. And I also need to understand the perspective of my clients, all these things. I need to try and understand their perspective so I can solve for all those different angles. And that's going to give me the most robust solution. Am I going to completely solve the Rubik's Cube? Probably not but I'll probably get probably all the sides, but it's a much better solution than just solving for one side. And then you just have to employ that empathy. And the empathy is like, where are they coming from? And what are they thinking? That's absolutely it. And then what else do you do? Now we put that with the four laws of combat. We simplify it. We decentralize command. We create all these people with that empathy, with that love, with that caring. And now they can go through and they truly scale what's going on. And that's the other part. People talk about scaling things in business, but they don't understand that when we scale anything, even the negative things are going to get bigger. So the idea is to really focus on these positive things so that we can sort of mix out these other things that are not going to serve us, especially as we grow. Because in the process, if we don't, we can actually grow so big that almost like a cancer, it kills what we're trying to create. Yeah, absolutely. And the key to that is by setting the example. People say, how do I get my teammates over here to take ownership? You have to take ownership. You can't make anybody else do anything. You can influence other people. And if you're truly influencing them or setting the example where you're taking ownership, it's going to work out well. You're going to have to do battle with your ego every day because your ego is that little voice that's saying, hey, they're trying to take all the credit for this job or now you're doing their job for them. You just have to overcome that. We do. And like you say, we also are on the same team. And when we know what the mission is, when we have that sort of commander's intent, it's like, listen, is this squabbling really serving what we're trying to do? Is this helping us get closer to that? Or are we just kind of standing here? And now the military analogy, if we're stacked up against the wall, we're all vulnerable. They can just throw a grenade or an RPG and everybody's done because two people cannot come to a conclusion. Or again, somebody doesn't step forward and lead. Even if it's the wrong answer, do it aggressively, have violence of action, and then we can pivot in real time if we need to, as opposed to being standing there like a target waiting to be taken advantage of. Yeah, that's just gold. You know, we talk about cover, move, and teamwork. You know, essentially, it doesn't matter what you do. If the whole team fails, then you fail. And one thing that I tell folks that are complaining about their bosses or complaining about a peer, you know, another department or whatever, I ask them, I'm like, hey, are you better off having an antagonistic relationship with your boss or a good relationship with your boss. And when they ask themselves that, or they answer that question, which is obvious, they're like, it's not good for me to have an antagonistic relationship with my boss. That's a little trick to help detach from that emotion where you feel like, you know, your boss called you out at a meeting or your boss doesn't listen to any of your ideas and can help you to try and manage those emotions a little bit better. And that again is that power of, of detachment. Sometimes just having a piece of paper and writing down, like I have an adversity scale, I call it. I put what's the worst thing I've ever had to go through is a 10 and then heaven on earth is a zero. And if we're really honest, lots of times we're catastrophizing, we're making this more difficult than what it needs to be. And if we can be really honest and say on a scale of one to 10, this is actually about a two or a three. And now again, by putting on paper, it forces that detachment. And now we can take that ownership and start to actually pivot and say, okay, what can I do in this moment? Yeah. There was a study that they did on that where they did an adversity scale and people are always seven. You know, you got people that are going through horrible cancer. Like, well, it's a seven. And then 
the flip side of that and the bad side of that is that when people got stuck in traffic, oh no, it's a seven. My my football team lost. It's a seven, and it's like it's not that big a deal. And and if there is an issue that we have right now is that there aren't really that many issues, especially for us in the United States. We don't have that many issues, but for some reason, create them out of human nature and just make stuff that's a one into a seven. That's it. It is sort of human nature. And I think that's also because, as you say, we're not being disciplined. We're not putting ourselves in these places where there's hardship. So because we've never been in this hardship, a lot of people overreact to something that doesn't deserve that amount of adversity scale. And then also, if something does happen, we know that when violence happens, it happens very quickly. So sometimes they're in this stage of denial before they even acknowledge that something's going on. So instead of overreacting in this case, they underreact and now they're hopelessly behind the curve. And lots of times that's when a lot of tragedy strikes. Right. But the reality is the chance of being in a violent crime are down now. Violence is down across the board, but you're absolutely right on that. And perspective is important. And so you don't really realize how good you have it until maybe you read a story about the Bataan Death March or listen to any of the stories from the Holocaust survivors. And then that'll tune you up really quick. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I don't have it so bad. I also think that there's real value in getting these perspective adjustments because as human beings, we're going to continually kind of slide over and then every once in a while, and maybe that looks like every couple months, you read about something from history that's really, really, really intense. And then that just lets you know, oh, wow, I, I don't have it so bad. I actually have it really good. Don't have to look far to find examples, not so much in this century, but in the last one, you know, with anything from the Armenian genocide to the Holocaust to all those horrible things that happen to people that, you know, in this day and age, you're like, we've got it fantastic. I can scale everything back down to that one and not rate it a seven. I got the honor of interviewing a Cambodian boxing instructor. His name is Master Amri Ban. He was the Muhammad Ali of Cambodia. And then when Saigon fell and Pol Pot came in, the Cambodian genocide from the communists began. His whole family's wiped out in a camp. He went from being like this Muhammad Ali figure to zero money. He had to escape to the Philippines two years later. And I see him in Los Angeles and I talked to him two years prior to that. He had been beaten within an inch of his life at gunpoint. If you talk to him, like he smiles, he acts like you're the most important person in the world. He hugs you. He loves you. He's bowing. And I say, how can you be so optimistic? And he says, Marcus, I'm alive. And it just, it hits you. It's just like, he's absolutely right. Like we have this opportunity to do something now, to be alive. He's seen so much death, so much destruction, yet he still has this opportunity to this gift of being able to make this moment, this day, the most important day. And it just keeps you really honest. Like you said, it brings you down to that. Yeah, I shouldn't be complaining that my latte is not hot. I shouldn't be complaining that there's traffic. Yeah, and you can't do anything about it. Maybe the latte, you can say, heat this up, but just don't take it personally. And the traffic, you're stuck. That's super interesting. Isn't that incredible? Some people will have the opposite effect and they're never going to let go of that trauma and that hate and just relive it all the time. And they're radiating a negative energy. But it sounds like this guy is just radiating that grace that we were just talking about and his his life's better. I have a similar experience with a, a Tibetan friend of ours who's just the happiest person ever, ever. And then we asked him, you know, about Tibet, leaving Tibet. He hiked over the mountains with a bunch of people and it was a horrible trip, like 
15 of his party of 40 or whatever died on the hike out, you know, I'm like, good grief. But he's like, you know, essentially the same thing. I'm alive. He's stoked. That's it. And JP Tanello, he says that we live to honor them, whether it be a person that was in our family, whether it be a person that we serve with, whether it be a person that meant something to us as a mentor that's no longer there. But our actions for Marcus Aurelius, they echo through eternity. But the intention and the gravity of those actions are continuing to move forward. So if we take that sort of ownership, if we take that accountability and say, listen, the way I'm acting and the way I'm choosing to act in this moment is going to influence not only this interaction, but like you said, how that person is for the rest of the day, the afternoon, the way they go home when they see their family. If we look at it like that and we understand how powerful it is, it maybe we can take a step back, like you said, and say, I'm going to give this person some grace or some space or understand that the way that they're reacting to this situation is maybe hyper-aggressive and there's something else going on. So I'm just going to give them a little bit of space, just like an aggressive driver or whatever. Just let them get out of the way. They didn't hurt anybody. And now you can move on with your life in a positive manner. Absolutely. That takes discipline, right? It takes discipline to run those those filters. It takes discipline to remember that we're honoring them and all that. And so that's the aspect people feel like it, you know, it, it means rigidity and it it's not what it's about, about doing these things that are uncomfortable and they're hard. Being kind is not easy. It's not. The easy route is to just go out if someone yells at you. The easy route is just be a jerk right back and walk around like you just came out of the jerk store. <laughs> I love that. Anytime I can channel Seinfeld. But that's easy. It's much harder to be kind and to just be loving and treat the world with love or treat everyone with unconditional love. It's so true. And we hear about these ideas and it looks good as a meme or a quote or even looking at different philosophies. But again, Epictetus says, don't tell me your philosophy, embody it. So it's very easy for us to talk about this. But again, when you're under adversity, when you're under pressure, when you're in that cold bath, when you have that person that's, that's acting unnecessarily aggressive or adversarial, that's our opportunity to be able to step back and learn. Again, even Jocko, when he was speaking in Tulsa, he was saying how that when he would put people through some training and he says it would be easy for him to step back and say, well, that was pathetic. What'd you do wrong? But then when he looked, he was like, well, I'm the one teaching them. I'm the one that should be giving them these skill sets. So what does that say about me? Actually, this is my fault that they're falling down. Absolutely. And you think about that with parenting. If your kids are messing up, you're doing it wrong. You know, every time that I've had to discipline my kids, it it represents some way that I failed them by not getting in front of it. Period. You know, if they go, if I go into a store, if we're getting ready to go to the store and, I, and I, I take the time before we go in and say, hey, we're going into the store. I need you guys to stay close. Please don't pick everything up. We're not buying something today. And then if someone says hi to you, look at them in the eye and say hello back. Just say that. And then all these things, they're not ready to go to bed on time. And that's because I didn't put my phone down half an hour before their bedtime and spend some time getting them ready for bed. So here's how this empowers me. If I'm like, hey, my kid's a bad kid, there's not really anything I can do with that. But if I look at it through the lens of they acted out or whatever, and that's because I didn't do something wrong or I didn't do something correctly, there's something I could do better. Now that empowers me because I can actually do something about that. I can actually look at a different strategy to parent my kids or, and each kid needs a different strategy individually. Like there are ways that I can talk to my son. I can't talk to my daughter that way and vice versa. Then that's really, really empowering. That's absolutely it. And again, you're understanding with that empathy that 
maybe your son takes a certain kind of coaching compared to your daughter. Maybe you just need to love on your son at this point. Maybe you need to be more understanding with your daughter, whatever it is. And again, that teaches them that just because there is a situation where there is this interpretation that there's conflict doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, I can never be friends with that person again, or I can never spend time with that person again, because in today's world, we see where that can be common. And I love that you're having your kids being very present, being very respectful, acknowledging this person, because that gives them a huge advantage in life. How many people do we see now when you shake their hand where they won't make eye contact with you or if they're looking away? And maybe that's just the situations that you find yourself in sometimes, but I'm 50, I'm an older guy. So to me, shaking hands, looking at you in the eye, saying, sir, yes, sir, acknowledging you, that means a lot because that shows me that you're at least paying attention. But if you're on the phone or you're looking at your watch or you're tapping your foot and looking around, it shows me that for whatever reason, I'm having to compete for your attention. And that means that it's going to be hard for us to really connect on any authentic level. Yeah. Your attention is everybody's currency. That goes tenfold for kids, but it's for adults too. And if you can just be present in the moment and pay attention to folks. And, you know, of course, there's a dichotomy. Like you talk about, you know, being around negative people. There's a when to mentor and when to fire. They got that dichotomy of leadership and it's great. There is a point where people can be a negative influence on your life. and after you've gone through a certain process, it's time to cut them away because they're just essentially poison. That's not your starting point, but you have to have that balance in your life because there are people that are cancerous and there's no point in poisoning yourself with their cancer. Agreed. And we're talking about discipline to maintain boundaries, to protect yourself or to protect your family. That takes discipline. That's a hard conversation sometimes. Sometimes those people are coworkers or people that are close to you where you have to tell yourself, I'm going to at least pull away from this for now because it's starting to influence me, the way that I treat my family, et cetera, the way that I perform. And I've met so many people. I've never met a strong person or a person that doesn't have resilience because it takes the strength and resilience to be able to exercise and deploy empathy. If I feel strong, I don't feel like I'm weaker by being empathetic or giving somebody grace. But the people that I know that have been at those highest levels have gone through some sort of adversity to get there. Can you tell us about an adversity that you went through in your life, whatever example comes to mind, that at the time you didn't think that you would be able to get through it, but when you got to the other side, you realized that you were so much stronger and that there were so many gifts and lessons within that opportunity. I spent so much time away from my family and the SEAL teams that now it really helps me to be more present in the moment. There was one operation in Afghanistan and in when I was there in 2009 where we were almost overrun by the Taliban. We only had one aircraft overhead. We were completely surrounded and taking fire from every direction. No one could put their heads up because you would get shot. I was laying down and there was a little rock wall right above my head. And I was watching that rock wall and it's this far above my head. I'm watching it physically erode under the bullet impacts. And so... A bunch of non-emotional thoughts came through my head. They were just expressions of fact. It's like, you're going to die today. And this is what you get. You live by the sword. You're going to die by it. And then I thought briefly about what it was going to feel like when I got shot. Because, you know, you hear all these different stories about people saying burns or it's like getting with a ball bat. Luckily, I wasn't shot and we weren't overrun. I'm here today. But. That was one of those moments where it was like you're in a slow motion car accident and you're on your fifth tumble and time is just completely slowed down. And then you realize, hey, what's worthwhile and what isn't? And so on this journey that I've been on, when I came back from that deployment, 
I was a mess. I was addicted to Ambien. I was drinking heavily as a way to self-medicate. And I was getting angry really quick. And my wife, Iris, said, hey, go see a psychologist. And so I saw a psych for the last 10 years of my career and got down to the point where it was like, initially it was once every two weeks. And then it was just like once a month for a tune-up because it was great to have that other person to bounce ideas off of and a way just to sit back and assess everything. Because that's it's really hard work working through all these issues and not taking the easy button go to sleep, I'm just going to pop a pill, which by the way, isn't real sleep and results in all kinds of other health issues. Or, hey, I'm feeling really anxious, but I know that if I drink two beers inside of 20 minutes, that's going to push down that anxious feeling and I'll feel this bubbly warm feeling. And I've got to get to the point where I got to put in the work to get there without all those crutches. And so that set me on that journey that I'm on right now. And I keep working on just to try and be a better person, a better husband, a better father, a better neighbor, a better community member, and do all those things and put in the hard work because it's hard work. Like you said, it's none of that's easy. All this stuff takes strength. It takes strength for me to be vulnerable and say, yeah, I saw a psych. For years, and there's no, there shouldn't be any shame in that. It has a stigma. It's unfortunate that it does, but it does. And I think me and a lot of other people that have got a lot of combat experience, where it's it's hard, it's not easy for someone to point at me with five combat deployments and say you're a weakling. And if you do, I don't care. And so that's why I've got to be example and say this is what you do. You know, if you're having a rough time, reach out to friends, reach out to loved ones and go see a professional. And in your community, it could be it could be a clergy member. And in that case, it's probably not going to cost you a dime or maybe your insurance covers it. All these things that you can do to get somebody else to help you out. And I've always found, too, personally, then when other people share their shortcomings And I hear that and they're like, well, you know, I've got a real negative internal dialogue and I beat myself up. And when I hear that, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not the only one that does that. And then it takes a little bit of weight out of that rucksack that I'm carrying. And it makes my walk through life a little bit easier when I realize I'm not the only one that has these insecurities because and everybody's got them. Everybody's got insecurities. Everybody has an internal dialogue where they're probably beating themselves up. Everybody is, is worried about what everybody else thinks. And when they hear, Oh wait, I'm not the only one that helps. That's so powerful. And like you said, you having the courage to be transparent, remove the stigma. It helps normalize this. It helps us understand that just because we are a warrior doesn't mean that we come back unscathed, even if physically, if we're in one piece, There are all kinds of other scars and the body keeps score. So you being courageous enough to do that work, like you said, I've had clients that have done, whether it be getting off the medications or whatever it is, they say this work is more difficult dealing with their trauma than dealing with some of these other things. So again, it's always a work in progress. And like you're saying, this is where that discipline equals freedom. And this is where those kind of micro goals of saying, listen, I just need to be present right now in this moment. And that's all that matters and then move on to the next part, the next part, the next part. And now it's all present. And now it's all this opportunity to learn, to love, to express this gratitude, to have the gratitude to ourselves, to give the same grace to others that we get to ourselves and vice versa. And then it becomes this perpetuating cycle. But like you said, sometimes getting us out of the mud initially, creating that momentum can be difficult. 
Yeah, there is no moment except the present. And everything else is a practical application. The past, you learn from it, then you let it go. The future, you plan for it, but then you want to be, make sure that you're present in the moment. And kind of, there's something that I'd like to just task everybody that's listening with this. Here's your, what we call these immediate action drills. And here's the immediate action drill I have for you, for everybody out there. Our first responders, our paramedics, our police, our firefighters, they have to deal with negative, horrible things every day. They're awash in negative energy. So next time you see a firefighter or you see a police officer specifically, actually, let's focus on the police because they're in a tough spot. They have to go to that domestic violence call where everyone's yelling at people. They have to see the worst of everything every day and it's hard work. And then right now they're getting kind of beat up in the media. And so thank them. Go up and say, hey, your job is really tough. And I want to thank you for what you do and give them a big smile. And then you know what? That's going to help them maintain their composure when they're in a difficult situation later on that day. And it's just going to help them to do a better job for our community. You know, even if the guy is writing you a ticket, they're writing you a ticket because these are laws that our communities have set up to keep us safe, right? And just make it at work. They're just doing their job. Don't take it out on them. We need somebody to do that job. Otherwise, there'd just be chaos out there. People will be speeding all over the place, driving over kids in school zones and stuff because they're they're late for an appointment. And so we need them to do a tough job. And then we resent them for doing that job. So go give them some thanks. Give them a smile. That positive energy, it radiates. And the more that we can become fountains of that positive energy, the more that we can walk like Nick Norris, the better off we're all going to be. I agree. And I love what you said. You and I got to speak to the Los Angeles Police Department Behavioral Health Unit. And I love that you were bringing that up because, again, the times that an officer see someone, oftentimes that's their worst day. Like that person's worst day. Somebody's been hurt. Somebody's been injured. Somebody's been killed. And now that's their first call on a Monday. And now they have 11 more hours and that's the first day of the week. So like you say, we need to be able to give these people some grace, give them some empathy. And again, we hold them to such a high standard. And then we second guess them after the fact, Monday morning quarterback them. That's a very hard job to do, even under ideal situations. So again, like you said, buy that cup of, cup of coffee or buy him his drink at the gas station, whatever it is, it's a small thing, but that small thing may be a huge thing for him. We're talking about rucking ounces equal pounds. So just taking a few ounces off of them can make that load a little bit easier to bear. And again, there's a dichotomy there too, because I have empathy for someone because I support them doesn't mean that they don't get held accountable for their actions. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And so that's a tricky thing. Just because you apologize, it doesn't wave off accountability. It shows that you're a mature person, but you still have to face the music, whatever that is, as long as it's mediated out in a fair and transparent manner, we all win. That's it. And that's the standard that we have to have. Like you said, that's such an important job. If we don't have some sort of standard, then again, it becomes very convoluted very quickly. Jason, I could talk to you all day, but I want to be respectful of your time and maintain the word that we put at the beginning. Where can people learn more about you? Where can they learn more about Echelon Front? Where can they learn more about you and homesteading and all the things that you have going on? Learning about Echelon Front, they go to echelonfront.com. That's our website. And then I post stuff about leadership, but then also kind of my homesteading lifestyle and thoughts on the Instagram, which is jason.n.gardner. 
And that's it. I'm just trying to put positive stuff out there and be a better person and make a better world. You're doing it. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you at the council. I can't wait. I'm excited. And again, to see all this put into play and get out there and get after it in the outdoors is going to be amazing. So thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.